0: Hi, this is David Leach of the UVic's Department of Writing. The following interview took place as part of a series of conversations I had with authors and other guest experts on the topic of memory and the creative process in my Writing 501 graduate MFA seminar. We hope you enjoy. Hi there, welcome back. I am excited welcome my newest colleague in the Department of Writing. So new, I've only been able to uh, see her on Zoom so far. Catherine Mockler is a multi-talented, multi-genre writer, filmmaker, teacher, and editor. She's published five collections of poetry, produced uh, several short films and experimental videos which have screened uh, everywhere including the Toronto International Film Festival, the Arizona Underground Film Festival, Real Poetry, and other major uh, festivals. She was the Canada editor for Joyland magazine from 2013 to 2020 and the publisher of The Rusty Took from 2011 to 2017. Uh, She's a co-editor of Watch Your Head. Writers and artists respond to the climate crisis released by Coach House Books in October 2020 and is the publisher of the Watch Your Head website. Her debut collection of short stories is forthcoming from Book hug in 2023. Welcome, Catherine.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: <laughs> it's, it's our pleasure. Now, <laughs> I always begin with this question. What's your first memory of wanting to be a writer or of writing?
1: Yeah, I was, uh, I, it's funny, I was uh, mulling that over because I used to run a literary journal and that was, I used to say, what was your first memory of writing creatively? which is different than wanting to be a writer, because I don't really think even though my best friend's mother was a poet, I didn't really think of it as a career choice. It wasn't really um, a lot of my family members were teachers. So I didn't really think being a writer was a career choice. But uh, when I was 18, I worked in a corn canning factory. and, um, And that experience ended up being the subject matter of my first book of poetry, which was like a poem novel. But during that summer, a really weird thing happened to me. And I, a po- I was, my job was to stand on the line and watch the cans go by. And when one went out of place, I would poke it with a stick. And so you're kind of in a trance the whole time, and you can't really talk or hear anybody because the factory's so loud. And my boyfriend worked across the, the machine from me, it was called a bright stack. And uh, anyways, just one day I was like staring off into space and uh, I poem just came to me and I just wrote it out on my cigarette pack I smoked back then. And, uh, and I I wish I had the poem in the cigarette pack that would have been a really nice um, object to have. Um, Maybe it's somewhere I don't know. Uh, But that I think that's when I first like I didn't realize it but writing was sort of happening to me like as a kid I had always been creative but that's where like I was like just minding my own business and a poem just came at me and then I went to Concordia University a couple years later and my best friend whose mother was the poet was majoring in creative writing and that's when I wanted to do it too because she was having people over and it was really looked really fun.
0: Great. That's a wonderful story. <laughs> I, what what role does memory play in your own creative process? And can you describe it?
1: Yeah, I was kind of thinking about it because I think it plays a role. Like initially when you invited me, I'm like, oh, I don't deal with memory. <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, yeah, I only deal with memory. <laughs> So it was kind of funny, like just coming here made me think about it. I think like memory is writing or writing is memory. It's sort of hard to distinguish the two. And every second that passes could be considered a memory, which sort of started to freak me out. Um, uh, but I think I work in many. I work in memory, di- many different forms, and memory sort of operates in different ways. Like in my poetry and experimental videos, I write a lot from dreams, which I consider a form of memory, and remembering them or being able not to, or not being able to, uh, fragmented or random thoughts. The series I'm working on now is was started out as one line poems or one line prose pieces. And um, they were just like, the, the interesting thing about those is I would be having a conversation with someone and say, oh, my God, that's a poem. And then I'd have to write it down because if I didn't write it down in the second that I realized it was a line for a poem for me, um, it might not have been a poem for anybody else, but for me it was. I would forget it instantly. And so there was this kind of, you know, it's a bit like that feeling of when you wake up in the middle of the night and you have a great idea and if you don't write it down, that was like happening to me at all parts of the day in many different interactions. And then much of my fiction and poetry and screenplays is sort of auto-fictional to the point where um, I had submitted a story to Geist magazine and they published it as non-fiction and it didn't really matter because it was. <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> so
1: it, it has a, it's a big role in pretty much everything I do, actually.
0: Uh, that's great. Well, actually, that leads nicely into the next uh, question. I mean, you seem like a genuinely multi-genre creator rather than someone who mostly writes, I don't know, say fiction but dabbles in other genres. How do I mean how do you decide which genre suits your content or suits the moment or does form come first and, and maybe tied to that how do the different genres you work with bleed into each other?
1: Yeah, I'm sort of a genreless writer. Like it's almost like I feel like genres dictated by other people. Um, and if they accept what I'm submitting as a poem or a story, you know, my poems sort of sound like plays and my screenplays sound like plays. I said this at the grad at home thing. I'm sort of, <laughs> I think I'm a playwright and that's the only genre I've never written in. Um, but uh, uh, I am i think at the heart, I'm really interested in narrative and storytelling. And much of my poetry is narrative poetry. Uh, and I'm not, I don't really... I'm not interested in genre. I just see it as a categorization of form and as something sort of external to my process and more about publication and placement. Uh, so recent, the book that's coming out, initially I submitted it to Book Hug as poetry, and then I was like, oh, I think this is actually fiction. And they're like, yeah, it's fiction. <laughs> So, uh, you know, and a lot of people would consider the type of poetry I write is very, very narrative and probably more flash fiction or, or narrative. So I think I start with a poem because that's the thing that sort of comes at me like um, it did that day in the in the factory or a short story, and then I'll adapt it into different genres. Like, I'm not precious about genre, which I know for some poets, that's really offensive. (laughs) And uh, um, fiction writers sometimes don't like that either. But I just, I care about a story. And I, and I just, uh, if there's an opportunity, I will write something and send it in that form. And so it's kind of it's it, it sort of happens. I'm considering the next book I'm writing, the one that's coming out in a couple of years, even though there are things that may have started out as poetry, um, they will, uh, you know, I'm just putting everything under the category of prose. So, these one-line poem things are going to be prose. I'm just calling it all prose now, so...
0: So it's just a label that you you can kind of uh, add like to a can of corn after the fact. It's the, the marketers after. Yeah, right?
1: yeah. And I know that pe- people who devote their lives to a single genre like that is just my point of view. May find
0: that really <laughs>
1: offensive. <laughs> um, uh, so I'm probably, if I were to pick, I'm less a poet, I think, and more probably fiction prose than.
0: Than anything else oh interesting well let's maybe talk a little bit about your your film work and which often takes experimental forms what is the creative process behind um, your film work when you're making a film or thinking about um, making a film
1: yeah so my some of the traditional more tra- less experimental came out of when i went to the film center and uh, and one one of those film, there were two films that were made uh, at that point and uh, one was uh, based on a poem that I had written uh, that was about that came from a dream and then the other one was something that was brought to me by the director so in that case you know it really starts with narrative and and story in my more experimental stuff um, I it's it's usually, the process is very similar to writing a poem the idea comes to me and it's sort of instinctual when the pandemic hit you know i wanted to start making experimental film again i hadn't done it in a while um i'd been focused a lot on on poetry and running literary journals and things and uh you know the pandemic posed a challenge of not being able to you know be with other human beings in a room for an extended period of time so I went back to doing experimental um, stuff and so I just kind of you know would find images and use those and sort of match them up with some of the uh, the fragmented uh, memories and dreams and line one line things and it's kind of random and uh, instinctual there's no grand design in that kind of stuff. When I write like a proper screenplay or television series or something like that, I have to plan it like I do a proper narrative, but with this stuff, I love it. It's very freeing. I don't think about it. I really enjoy it. It, it um, is meditative and relaxing and really about associations.
0: Very interesting. How do you see uh, other screenwriters and filmmakers, and I guess also yourself, exploring or representing memory in film? Are there a kind of set of tools and techniques that help get into that strange internal space of of memory in, in a cinematic context?
1: Yeah, I think um, they do it through flashback, monologue, voiceover, um, documentary, um, found footage those are some of the some of the tools I think that um, filmmakers use to kind of depict memory in um, <clears throat> in uh, in their stories
0: Okay, great.
1: and uh, oh. oh sorry I'm just going to say one thing and I think experimental film uh, artists in particular use found footage to sort of challenge dominant narratives and ideologies too
0: oh interesting yeah I uh, poetry is, is really intimately uh, uh, linked with memory. I mean, there's, there's specific forms like the ode or the elegy that, that kind of deal explicitly me- with memory. Even something like the haiku can be seen as preserving those momentary kind of fragments of memory. Uh, what is it about poetry and its techniques that allow writers to investigate and represent the mysteries of memory or, or as you were talking about, dreams, those kind of uh, liminal states of, of consciousness so well?
1: Well, I think fragmentation and also sensory language um, and just the the ruminating on something as specific as a word or a piece of punctuation or it just allows us to ruminate on something that often gets overlooked.
0: Interesting. We've, we've been talking about issues uh, related to personal memory, history and, and forms of, of power and looking ex- explicitly at Claudia Rankine's citizen uh, this week. Uh, how do you see the role of poets and other writers and artists in addressing issues of, of social justice? Are we really the unacknowledged legislatures of the world? What, what kind of impact can we have?
1: Yeah, I can't I mean I can't really speak for other people and I don't really like to romanticize the role of the poet. Sometimes that quote sometimes will get criticized for kind of its universalization of morality. And so, you know, depending on your position, morality and justice mean different things at and at different times in the world. So I'd say for me personally, I use poetry and art as a tool to address social or climate justice issues, which is what I'm interested in. It's a good way to get ideas out there. And it also helps me deal with what I find overwhelming. But I sort of think the unacknowledged legislators of the world are sort of the activists who are on the front lines, land and water defenders, not to diminish it, but not necessarily someone who has the privilege to sit down and write a poem. And I don't mean to demean it because, you know, I've devoted my life to it. But I just I'm not I'm not as interested in in like romanticizing it or patting myself on the back for writing a poem about climate justice or something. I'm sort of doing it to survive and as a way to kind of communicate. But that's how I see it.
0: Yeah, fair enough. So tell us now, now about Watch Your Head, both the anthology and the website. I mean, what what motivated it? How is it involved? What's your uh, uh, your kind of involvement um, been like for you?
1: Uh, yeah, so it's an ongoing uh, project. It's a, it's a website. We're at watchyourhead.ca. And uh, what happened was, is I was involved in an environmental group that actually turned out to not be a great group. And but anyways, there was an event where I was asked to uh, organize a poetry reading. And prior to this I had been, to be honest, a little frustrated. I didn't feel writers and artists were speaking out enough about uh, what was happening, what the scientists were saying about, you know, back in 2019, that we had 12 years to slow down emissions. And I was just feeling really alienated from the literary community and so kind of went full into this environmental group that ended up not being great but anyway um but so when I invited people to come and read it was very last minute and and I just actually asked people on Twitter and then basically the first eight people who responded showed up and some of those people you know wrote poems for the event there were eight writers all together and um I was really I just videoed it on my phone and I was so moved by it and um, uh, that I thought, oh, I should put up some kind of a website or something. And initially, Watch Your Head was going to be the name of my book, the one that's coming out. And I bought the URL. and I thought, oh, that's a kind of good name for a climate anthology. And I'd run anth- I founded the Rusty Took and had been an editor for joyland so i had lots of experience with running literary journals and i just like popped it up and then the response was kind of overwhelming writers wanted to be involved we now have an editorial board of like i think it's 26 or 28 writers and artists and it just kind of snowballed from there the quill Inquirer did an article cbc did a thing on it and it just kind of people were Really interested in it. And then um, Coach House offered to do a print anthology. Uh, And then the pandemic hit. So we were editing the anthology in the thick of the pandemic. The whole thing's a bit of a blur now, but...
0: Great. I mean, what, what is the role of, of memory and writing in, in addressing something as, as global, as foreboding as the, the climate crisis that I, I think we all can agree can feel uh, kind of paralyzing in its immensity to us as uh, individuals, even as it uh, affects individuals and communities in, in uh, different ways?
1: I mean, I don't know if I totally have an answer for that. The way I just personally grapple with it is I think, you know, environmentalism has been framed on we have to save the world from some impending disaster in the future. What people fail to realize is that we're living in the disaster and have for some time and that there are communities all over the world, Bangladesh and and environmental racism in Canada, Nova Scotia, that we are are impacted now, here and now and that, you know, communities are impacted and it is not this far away thing that it is future generations are going to have to deal with. So I always, you know, in terms of addressing it, in terms of the writing that we select, um, like I'm less interested as an editor and publisher to publish work about someone worrying about their grandchild and we're more focused on, Uh, remembering what got us in this state, which is colonialism and slavery and the theft of land and resources and people. Uh, And that's, you know, why the world is in this situation. And I think until we fully grapple with that and really change uh, the structures of our institutions, we're You're not really going to be able to to deal with that. So so I find, of course, it's overwhelming to think about what's going to happen in 20 years as we continue to ignore, you know, the biggest challenge of the planet. And so I, I found the way that I could deal with it is by fighting against colonialism and fighting uh, for social justice for people who are alive now and reminding people the roots of this um, so that as hopefully as a way forward so the remembering why we're here and what put us in this situation not necessarily just to ruminate and point fingers, but we, I don't think we, you know, I got through high school and I didn't even know what the word colonialism meant. And so I think it need, you know, it needs to be um, kind of grappled with in our society. And I think the pandemic has shown us that that, that has happened. So... I don't don't know if that answers your question, but that's kind of how I deal. And so I don't feel inadequate even writing about it myself. And so for me, it's bringing community together and hearing other people write about it and supporting that. That's how I feel that I can kind of deal with it Um, because it is, it's too big to imagine. And then what happens is you just turn away.
0: Mm -hmm. No, that makes sense. I mean, what other writers or filmmakers or artists uh, that you admire do interesting things with this kind of intersection of memory and and, uh, history in in their work?
1: Yeah, someone who I think has been a really big influence on me is Lydia Davis. Um, You know, she really blurs the lines between fiction, and non-fiction, poetry, and prose, and I feel like she has a similar attitude to genre that I do, and, and uh, uh, so I'm really interested in what she does. Um, and actually, uh, because you at our at the holiday we had a holiday gathering of the faculty in the department of writing david and you mentioned the memory police by yoko agawa and i've started reading that and i really love that book and i think it really deals with a a lot of the things that we've been talking about today and I haven't finished it yet. I'm still, I'm still reading it, but um, just this idea of, you know, a community where things begin to disappear and then, you know, anyone who remembers is suddenly a criminal. And I think that has a lot of um, uh, relevance for what happens, um, you know, uh, what happens today and also what happens with you know environmental activism and land and water defenders, and how they're treated for essentially remembering that the earth needs to be cared for and um they're you know criminalized oh, yeah, that's, uh, and a, then, thats that's a
0: great connection, yeah yeah I love <laughs> of that.
1: Um, and then Elisa Gabbert uh, wrote a book called The Unreality of Memory, and she just did an event at Concordia's writer, Read, and she read an essay from her book that blends personal memory, family memory, the science of memory and cultural criticism as she analyzes her own um, memory of her grandmother's house and how they're different from other people who visit, like her mother, who visited that house. And, um So that uh, those are some people who I was uh, thinking about. Um, And filmmakers, oh, I didn't put any filmmakers. Um, One thing I noticed I was you were mentioning that you were reading citizen I I love Claudia Rankine's work and she did a series of um, I wrote it down somewhere here. Um, she did a series of videos called The Situation, I think. Do you know about those? Yeah,
0: yeah, The Situation. And she includes actually scripts from them, is one of the chapters in, in Citizen. Kind of yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. So they're on her website and they're, you know, um, using found footage and memory and catastrophe and all that kind of stuff. So it's very, very cool uh, for experimental video stuff
0: fantastic well do you have an excerpt of your own work that you'd like to read for us
1: i do this one is a dream and i did not this is was the dream exactly i wrote it down and basically this is the (laughs) this is the poem um and um it's called the gray husky and yeah i don't know why i had this dream it's it really disturbed me when i woke up uh it was you anyways you'll see why it's called the gray husky a woman went to the spca looking for an animal to adopt and while she was there a man came in with a gray husky that he was surrendering because he could not properly take care of him he also admitted that he hit the dog from time to time when the woman heard this she winced and immediately fell in love with the dog and adopted him the man was grateful and left the animal shelter after a few weeks with the dog, the woman discovered she didn't like the great husky as much as she thought she would. He had an okay personality, but over time her feelings diminished and she deeply regretted adopting him. It wasn't the dog, it was her. She was thinking of finding him a new home when she ran into his previous owner on the street while taking the dog for a walk. The dog was excited to see his previous owner and the previous owner was excited to see him. They played and wrestled and the gray husky licked the previous owner's face. The sight of it brought tears to the woman's eyes. They missed each other and wanted each other back. So she handed the previous owner the leash and said, take him, all the while keenly aware of the reasons he had given up the dog in the first place. No, I was the woman in the dream. It was me. Wow, that. <laughs>
0: well, that, that is haunting.
1: <laughs> it, well, it's haunting because you're sort of doing the right thing, but you're also could be doing the wrong thing. And yeah. it's like having this simultaneous emotions at the same time, which doesn't always happen in a dream. But You're usually, it's like someone's running after you and you're afraid. Or I know my dreams sometimes are usually a little more simplistic than like having two Simultaneously, like she needed to give the dog back, and it was could put the dog in danger.
0: <laughs> yeah, so. fantastic. Well, maybe one last question before I open up Q and A, and I've been asking this of all of our guests. So, projecting into the the uh, future, near future, or a distant future, let say, how would you like to be remembered as a writer or an artist?
1: I don't know. I was thinking about that. And because I use art for personal survival, I don't particularly think I'm special. And I don't really think I deserve to be read after I'm dead. And also sort of the legacy of being an artist, the concept is part of the power structures I'm opposing in my writing. So I don't necessarily want to be remembered for being an artist. I would hope that some of my community work would get modeled by other people like I in some ways I hope that that's the lasting impression that I would have like how to work um with you know different communities of art or different you know um, communities of identity and and kind of modeling that that's I'm more interested in that I I really do use art for my own personal that's how I am in the world but I I don't see I'm not interested in a legacy, and I remember one of the things about when I was really worried about the, cl- I'm still very worried about it, but but when the UN report came out and I was, you know, very concerned, all these writers were talking about their, you know, oh, I've got to get my papers together for the library and I'm like, what library? It's all going to be in this swamp. Like, <laughs> You know, that's when the part when I was really like mad at the community for not like, how can you, you know, did you read the UM report? You're not going to have a legacy. So anyways, so that's uh, how I feel about it. Well, I don't I think, think I'm going to have one.
0: <laughs> but uh, no, I think that's a lovely way of thinking of a legacy of inspiring. Yeah, yeah, kind of different ways of of, of living and sharing and, and gathering uh community. Yeah. yeah. Great. Well thank you so much, Catherine. Mm-hmm.